Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 through 12 today. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that when we pray, when we cry out, when we come in the name of Jesus, you hear us and you speak to us and you change us and transform our hearts. As we come to you with a a broken and contrite heart dependent upon you to instruct us, and that is our desire today, to be instructed in the way of truth. Speak as your sheep are listening. And all God's people said, Amen. Look with me at verse 5 in our text. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. But why were the Thessalonians suffering? Because their life so identified with Christ. Because they stood for righteousness, they would not recant their beliefs. They knew that Jesus Christ was the foundation of their faith. And the world was watching and looking at them And those who hated Jesus were persecuting them. Paul, though, never saw suffering as a burden. In fact, Paul saw suffering as a blessing and even a privilege. Let me show you in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. When Paul said that they would be counted worthy, worthy of the kingdom in verse 5, he was not suggesting that they could earn a place in heaven by their own merit. No, worthy simply means fitness, not merit. It's through the suffering that God fits us for the glory that lies ahead. Jesus speaking in Matthew 5, verse 10 through 12, adds to that. He says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when you are insulted by people, and they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is that heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter, adding along that same thought, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for testing as though it was some strange thing were happening to you. See, our suffering here today is is but preparation for the glory to be revealed. Romans, following that same thought, says this in verse 18 of chapter 8, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Then Paul writing in 2 Corinthians. Notice what he said in chapter 4, verses 16 and 18. Therefore we do not lose heart, 
But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us eternal weight and glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our steadfastness and suffering becomes a testimony to the lost world around us. It may seem that God is not judging the sins of the world, but this is not true. In fact, we walk in unbelief. We will be discouraged, thinking that God is not vindicating his own, but God is preparing judgment for the wicked. The psalmist was discouraged, even talked about almost stumbling, and let me show you in Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Their garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. And moving down to verse 16, notice what he says. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceive their end. And sometimes that's what we need to do is just sit back, ponder, think about as we read the word of God. And God will speak through his word to you, to me. But we must come like little children. Come being open and teachable to God. And his scripture will speak to you time in and time out. Look in our text again, verse 6. For after all, it is only just for the God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Hell is ridiculed today, saying it doesn't even exist See, our beliefs are sometimes only wishful thinking. For example, it was a popular notion that Hitler would not plunge Europe into a war, turned Europe into a, a holocaust of flaming fire. But he did. And Chamberlain, a man with an umbrella, went, went over to meet with Hitler and Mussolini. And he came back saying that we would have peace in our time. But we didn't have peace. We don't have peace in the world today either. Also, many people thought that Japan would never attack America. Our government did not believe that she would. The liberal churches at the time were teaching pacifism. Well, whether they believed or not, there was a vicious attack upon Pearl Harbor. The first century, B.C., the Messianic Expectations, let me show you what I mean by that, because it's based upon what they knew in the Old Testament prophetic material. 
the first century Jewish community was not looking for the, the first event that was presented in the Gospels. Rather, they believed that the Messiah's second coming was near. It would end in a, a Jewish tribulation at the hands of the other nations and plus establish the Davidic kingdom that was promised in Second Samuel 7, verses 12 through 17, here on earth. The following features summarize the, their biblical expectations. First, a season of extreme tribulation would prevail prior to the Messiah's arrival. Second, in the midst of the upheaval, Elijah would arrive as a forerunner, the announcer of the Messiah. Thirdly, the Messiah would then come to earth, and then followed by the nations that would rise up against the Messiah, and a coalition of nations would be defeated and destroyed. Jerusalem then would be reoccupied and rebuilt, and the Jewish diaspora would return to Jerusalem and Israel would become the capital of the world. A time of peace and prosperity would then be inaugurated. See, this is what the futurists, the premillennialists, are expecting at the, at the time of the Messiah, second coming. Well, again, let's look at that that phrase, the mighty angels, in verse 7, it says, are envisioned as the Lord's army. 2 Kings 6.17 gives us a picture supporting that idea. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elijah. And his mighty angels in a flaming fire, see that flame of fire accompanied his manifestation at the, at the burning bush when Moses stood on holy ground. It was also at the, the giving of the law of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Hebrews 10.27 says this, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of the fire which will consume the adversaries. Well, in verse 8, it says in our text, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see two thoughts here. Dealing out the retribution to two different groups, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, in Deuteronomy 32, 35, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near. The impending things are hastening upon them. Now, retribution simply means justly deserved penalty. And certainly should, because God is a righteous God. God's retribution is directed toward the different groups, as I mentioned, too. One, those who do not know God. They're ignorant of God because they have deliberately rejected the knowledge of him that was offered in the gospel. Second, they do not know God. They, they lack that personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. In verse 8, it also says, those do not obey the gospel. 
See, these were simply those who refused to listen, to submit, and even obey the gospel. But with the Gentiles, Paul would say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves of those which by nature were no God. So the Gentiles, they were separated. They were enemies of God. They didn't know God. They were not in relationship with him. But this is the case. They were guilty of willful ignorance of God. In fact, Romans 2.14 says this, but when the Gentiles who did not have the law do instinctively the things of law, these not having a law are a law to themselves. In 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, that's the Jews weren't obeying it. They weren't ready to receive their Messiah. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. That's the nation of Israel. But those that are believers... Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Because you kept the word of my perseverance, I also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, in order to keep the word, you must know the word. And that's what Jesus is saying. You, you have kept my word. You know my word. You know me. And there's a testing that's coming upon this whole world now. He's talking about the, the tribulation that's going to come, that seven-year period of time, to test those who dwell upon the earth. Well, who are those that dwell upon the earth? That's not us in this sense, because he's talking about earth dwellers referred to in the book of Revelation. But we are pilgrims. Our home is not here. Our home is in heaven. Every believer is destined for eternity, to be with the king and the heavenlies. Notice with me in Exodus 16, verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. See, God is continually testing man. Not that he doesn't know the heart of man, but that man might know his own heart also to show that when judgment comes, he is a righteous judge. Look in our text in verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. And notice, the destruction is away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, going back to Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17, look at that again. And when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He was troubled again. They just seemed to be doing so well. That is the unbeliever, the wicked person. But in verse 17, he said, until I came in the sanctuary of God, then I perceived therein. See, for you and me, the believers, we can boldly go to that throne of grace. We can hear God speak through his word, through brothers, sisters, uh, through the radio, through a sermon. God speaks to his people. 
and his sheep know his voice. Now, we too can feel instinctively that in, in spite of all the terrible wrongs in this world, the evil that's about us, this is an immoral universe. It appears to be from our perspective. The wickedness, the injustice, the oppressions, the deceptions of men that, that demand judgment. Quite apart from all the atrocities and persecutions and holocaust, quite apart from the wars and ruthless wickedness, international terror and organized crime, quite apart from murder, rape, arson, prostitution, sodomy, frauds, abortion, child abuse, drug trafficking, and the like. They're, they're countless petty lust of hatreds and spites and lies that are part of the everyday life of millions of people. It's enough to depress you and me. But then there's the Alexanders, the Caesars, the Genghis Kongs, the Napoleons, the Hitlers, the Stalins, who have plunged this world into war, caused miseries beyond all humanity's ability even to redress. What about Chairman Mao, who have deliberately murdered and tortured and starved and brainwashed millions of people? There has to be a day of judgment. But will God ever judge? Look at verse 9 again. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Notice the destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Matthew 25, verse 41 says this, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a judgment coming, and all the cursed ones will be tossed into this eternal fire. Notice it was prepared for the devil and his angels. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 19 says this, Men will go into caves and rocks, into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. And when he rises to make the earth tremble, speaking of his judgment, you can see it. this verse is quoted in the context of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, where men hide themselves in the ground from the wrath of God. They know it's God, but they will not repent. God will judge. God will deal with them in due time. But now he wishes it all come to the saving knowledge of him that they would repent and turn, that they would Choose life, not death. See, in verse 7, it says, in, in the flaming fire, taking vengeance. This is what the day of judgment will be like for those who are persecuted, the Thessalonians. For the persecutors, those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there will be a day of vengeance and everlasting destruction. That phrase, everlasting destruction. See, the punishment of the wicked will neither be temporary or annihilation, 
but it will be the continual throughout eternity. Those being punished will be conscious of their torment. Matthew 25, verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Today, much of the the world believes that it's not going to be eternal punishment. They they take the focus that there's this annihilation where man will just cease to exist, that God's a holy God, a loving God. He wouldn't allow someone to go through eternal punishment. But eternal punishment is something that a person changes. See, we were created as eternal beings, either eternal life with the king or apart from that king. Eternal means simply perpetual. It's a place in time that has a duration that's constant, continually abiding. When referring to the eternal life, it it means a life which is, is God's and hence is not affected by the limitations of time. It goes on and on and on and getting better and better and better. In a world without any sin, a world that God is present, God who is love, God who is holy and pure and just and righteous, and he will rule all eternity. There's no question that the punishment of the wicked is everlasting. Just as the blessings of heaven are eternal, the penalty of hell also is eternal. What truly characterizes hell is that there are people from people from the presence of the Lord. They're separated from everything that is good. God is good all the time. We we sing that phrase. But in hell, everything is bad. Everything is punishment. There is no good. It is the absence from good. It is the absence from God. Well, from the presence, the Lord sums up the Bible's understanding of hell. It's not wrong for God, though, to take vengeance. We understand this when we understand what the word means in the ancient Greek language. The word rendered vengeance has no associations with vindictiveness. No, no. He is a righteous, holy judge. Romans 1, verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Notice it's against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, these are men who are aware that there is a God, but they do not know him and they do not obey him. Romans 2 verse 5 says this, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. See, it's something they're actively doing. It's because of their stubbornness, unrepentant heart. They're storing this raft up on their own. They're not choosing life, but they're choosing death. They're choosing judgment. Notice verse 10 in our text. And when he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe, for our testimony to you is, was believed. John seventeen ten says this, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. What a wonderful thought 
that one day the King will be glorified in our lives. Today we get a glimpse as we look around and, and we see God moving in this heart and that heart. And we see the face of Jesus in the good works, the loving kindness, the mercy, the love and the care. That work is being done in you, preparing you for that day, that glory to be with the King for eternity. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, even the remotest parts of the earth. See, there was a time when the Holy Spirit would come upon the believers, that we would become witnesses. Now, the Holy Spirit works in our life in three ways. Before we were in Christ, he was with us, convicting us of the world. And certainly the Holy Spirit's in the world, convicting them of their sin. The moment you became a believer, he came into your life. He empowers you from the inside, changing and transforming you, making you in the image and likeness of Jesus. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit works. He comes upon you. He empowers you to do what God has called you to do, to be the witness, the testimony that there is a God. You become witnesses and you become living stones. In fact, that's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. And coming to him as living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for holy priesthood to offer up the spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, look with me in verse 11. Here's the prayer for success. And to this end, we also pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire of goodness and the work of faith with power. See, here he assures the believer that, that he's thanked God for them always. He did this back in verse 3. Now he adds that he prays for them always in verse 11. And he now asks God to count them worthy of his honor, to mature them so that they may add glory to Christ at his coming. What does it mean to walk worthy? Whether Jesus was speaking to a large crowd or a small crowd, he made sure it was clear on what it meant to follow him. See, Jesus is not looking for fans. Jesus is looking for followers. Followers who understand that there is no forgiveness without repentance. And there's no salvation without surrender. God's calling us to surrender our life to him. And there's no life without death. Death to our fleshly desires. Life eternal. See, there's no believing without following. The scripture in many places warn us, be not deceived. 
Luke 9.62 said this, But Jesus said to them, No one, after putting his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. It means when we come to Christ, we choose to live for him. We choose life. We put our hand to the plow. We do not look back. We do not be like a dog returning to his vomit. We press on day in and day out. That's the one that that is worthy of the kingdom. So what should Christians do who are in the will of God when, when they go through painful testing and trial? Instead of looking back, they're to thank God for their salvation and that he is with them. They should surrender to the will of God without complaining. They're to ask God to, to give them wisdom and to understand his will and then watch for opportunities to witness and glorify God in this situation. And finally, patiently, wait until God's purposes have been fulfilled. Now remember, these times are a time of testing. Oh, God knows who is his. But in this testing, it reveals where our heart is. Have we really chosen life? Or have we chosen death? It's in these times that the greatest work is done in the believer's life, preparing him for the glory that lie ahead. It's the person that's going through these difficult times realizes that it's God that's at work in him. Honing, shaping, preparing. Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, God counts men worthy as they yield to, endeavor to do that which he works in them. But on the other hand, if we're out of the will of God, troubles will come. Oh, they will come. We must accept the loving Father's chastening hand. Hebrews reminds us in chapter 12, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It's been said that many that are suffering are going through things that they're being disciplined by the Lord, but just don't take time to sit before the Lord and say to the Lord, Lord, search my heart and see if there's any wicked way and let God speak to them. But God has to go to great extremes sometimes to get people's attention because he's wanting them to return. But on the other hand, not everyone that's going through suffering is suffering because they're being disciplined. We must remember at the same time that we're in a a fallen world. And even know that a person may be going through those difficult times, God can glorify himself in them. They can find glory in that pain, that suffering. They can realize that God's with them and he'll never leave them or forsake them. That he'll gird them up, he'll hold them, he'll sustain them. And when that time comes, 
and they close their eyes in this world, when they open their eyes up, they will be at the beam of seat rewarded for all that God has entrusted them with and their faithfulness to glorify God. Look with me in verse 12. We see the praise and their conversation so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the ultimate purpose of this prayer is the glory of God. We must keep on pressing forward. We must keep on working. Every good work and work is a good model to follow in these dark days. We need to keep on giving out the word. Keep on working for Christ. I'd like to share an illustration. Suppose you were playing a halfback in a Super Bowl and someone approached you before the kickoff and tells you that he already knows the outcome of the game. Absolutely, positively, your team is going to win. This guy is trustworthy. He's reliable. You have no doubt he's right. But here's the rub. Only those who play their hardest will receive the Super Bowl ring. So what will you do? Will you run hard? Uh, uh, go all out. Take risks. Be content to run a, a few patterns, and catch a couple passes, sit on the bench for the while. After all, your team's going to win. See, this is the, the dilemma Christians face every day. Our team is already guaranteed victory. When the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven in the blazing fire of his powerful angels. But what will we do in the meantime? Many Christians are confident that they're going to go to heaven. They spend their time on earth sitting on a bench. They attend church. Pass up opportunities to help in ministry. Preoccupied with the playbook. I like to watch missionaries on the front lines of their faith, but they rarely stretch beyond their own comfort zone. See, Paul encouraged the Thessalonians and us to devote ourselves to God living. This is not an option for Christians, but it should be our consuming passion so God may count us worthy of the calling that by his power he may fulfill every act prompted by our faith. See, God has guaranteed the ultimate victory, but we're not guaranteed a reward unless we do our part. Unless we obey and follow in his will, persevering in the faith, Holiness and love. Father, that is truly our desire today that we would follow you wherever you go. That we'd be submissive to the opportunities that you've already prepared before the foundation of the world. That we would trust you for the, the abilities, the finances, the grace that you have 
given us is still available to us today. Father, we choose to put our hand to the plow and not turn back. We choose to press on and not grumble and murmur. We choose to yield to you as you shape us and mold us and prepare for the glory to come. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your incredible love, your incredible patience, your incredible understanding. We're thankful that you are a sympathetic high priest. So, Lord, we commit our lives to you again, all over. Have your way in our hearts today. And all God's people said, Amen.